three readings which are important, and they're, they're worthy of a sermon uh, in themselves, but you know, these only come up once every three years, so I think it's important to say at least something about all of the readings. In, in parts of the green season, it's, it's very good reading because you're dealing with a lot of things like the hard sayings of Jesus, which is uh, one of the readings today in the gospel. So they, the three readings talk about things like what kind of a God do we believe in? What do we understand uh, being made in the image and likeness of God means? And finally, uh, what do we do about Jesus' absolute prohibition of divorce in Mark's gospel, which is the strictest of all of the prohibitions against divorce uh, in, in the gospels, or for that matter, in the New Testament? So I want to talk about all three of these things. We switch gears in the Old Testament now. We're still in the wisdom literature, but we read today from the beginning of Job, and we'll be reading in Job for, I think, two or three Sundays. And I need to say something generally about the book of Job and then uh, what went on in the reading today uh, with Job at the beginning. We were reading from Proverbs for a number of weeks, which is one of the oldest writings in what is called the wisdom literature. Actually, you know, the Hebrew Bible is divided up into three things. And this section, they don't call the wisdom literature, they call it the writings. And that includes also some of the uh, prophetic texts as well. But in Proverbs, the type of wisdom they were talking about was multifaceted. But most of what we read in uh, the uh, book of Proverbs had to do with a type of wisdom that says that your circumstances are the result of your own making. Whatever, whether positive or negative, it's of your own making that you find yourself in these circumstances. And as the result of that, uh, most of us would say, well, what's new? Of course, most of the circumstances uh, that we find ourselves in are, are of our own making. But in the book of Job, which depending on what scholarship you read, can be dated either from about 1,000 B.C. to 200 B.C. Proverbs is back around the thousands. And so in one, one dating, they could be contemporaneous. But Job has another position on this. Job is blameless. He is a righteous man. He is being afflicted as the result of nothing he has done. In fact, it's a rather cruel bet that has been made between God and the Satan. Satan in this context does not mean the devil, it means the advocate. So the advocate's walking around, perhaps all the forces that exist in the cosmos uh, to say no to God and yes to ourselves, but in a little less personalized fashion than perhaps uh, the medieval understanding of the devil and maybe even fundamentalist Christianity's understanding of the devil in 2012. But uh, he says, if you take everything away from Job, who's a righteous man and honors you, you'll discover that he'll curse you at the drop of a hat. 
And so now we're going to go through, in the book of Job, a series of afflictions, dialogues, uh, conventional wisdom of the wrong kind, uh, unwanted advice from friends, all of the kinds of things that happen to people who are afflicted either through their own fault or no fault of their own. So what I want to say about this reading is really to ask you a question, and that is, do you believe in a God who produces suffering? And maybe more to the point, do you believe in a God who is capricious? I'll just do this and see what happens, you know. It's like in Italy and you get a salad al capriccioso, right? The whim of the chef. I don't think we believe in a God who's capricious, and I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that that is not so, since he unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. So suffering is not something that is part of the plan in the sense that God produces it and hands it out to us. There are some Christians who would say, I'm not right, because God is sovereign. And that means that God can do what God wants. So if it is beyond our understanding, it doesn't matter. If God wants to inflict suffering on you, he can and does. And it is beyond our ability and knowledge to understand this, and therefore we must just see what it is, or we must in some way uh, just uh, learn how to cope. You know? So this idea of the problem of suffering being uh, originated by God is problematic. And I think it always deserves a conversation about that in our own hearts and minds and in the, the community of faith. It also can be a positive disincentive for people to understand that we are obliged by our faith in Jesus Christ to look out for people who are suffering. That is part of the Christian vocation. And we ignore it at our own peril. So think this week about a capricious God. And what do you think? In the letter to the Hebrews, I, I, I've begun, begun to think there might be something a matter with me because in the last five or six years, I have really been able to read the letter to the Hebrews and I think I get it. When, whereas before, it used to make me, I thought, this is incomprehensible. But, as you know, my favorite line in the whole of the New Testament is in the letter to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. So today, here's the situation on the ground. Remember my teacher, O.C. Edwards, who said it isn't as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. So the situation on the ground is this. The letter to the Hebrews is written by a Jewish Christian who was writing to an audience of Jewish Christians who were influenced by the philosophy of a Jewish philosopher and writer named Philo of Alexandria. Some of you may have heard of Philo of Alexandria. So this is what they call, and file this on ice and amaze your friends, Philonic philosophy. Philo of Alexandria said this, you and I shouldn't focus 
uh, too much on our own um, on our own spiritual path. We should focus as part of uh, our wishing to be connected with God on the perfect forms that exist in eternity. Plato believed that there were a series of forms that were perfect, that human beings were a pale reflection of and could never fully be. Some of you may remember if you read any Plato in college or anything, the parable of the cave, where Plato is writing about people sitting in a cave like in a movie theater, and there's a fire behind them. And so what they see on the wall are the shadows that are being shown on the wall, and we're supposed to make some sense out of what's there and what it is. But it's a pale imitation of the reality that is behind us. So Philo would say, don't focus on those impure forms, those imperfect forms, focus on the pure form. It's kind of like when I was a little boy, you know, eight or nine years old, and I'd go over to be with my grandmother, and I would say, I'm having a hard time at school, and my teacher doesn't like me. And she would say, dear, you have got to rise above it. When you're eight or nine, that, that, it was kind of a non-starter. I was trying to figure out what in the world it meant, you know. Years ago when I became an Episcopalian, I was talking to a priest. I was thinking about maybe whether I had a vocation to the priesthood or not, and I was talking to him. And he looked at me and he said, You must present yourself as a living sacrifice. So the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews said, we need to refocus not on the pure forms, we need to focus on the person of Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And what he has shown us through his words and through his works is the way in which to live into the fullness of our humanity, which means made in the image and likeness of God, and by virtue of that, we can bring health and wholeness to all of our relationships and our interior emotional, mental, and spiritual states. And that this should be the goal of the Christian life, and it is to be preferred over philonic philosophy. And so you must understand that as you begin to see that you are in fact made in the image and likeness of God, you, like the Savior, bear the very imprint of God. If you read this in Greek, it's the language that is used. The Greek words are the mentor putting the stamp on the metal and hitting it with a hammer so that it makes the impress. That human beings bear the impress of the image and likeness of God like Jesus. And so every time we're tempted to think about our imperfections, we need to understand that what is being affirmed is the possibility to live into the perfection to which we're called. And the author to the letter of the Hebrews wishes to emphasize that we live into that image 
and likeness. He is not talking about moral perfection. I bet you're relieved. But that's not what we're talking about first. We're talking about our humanity. Being the best human being you can be. There's no other way for you and I really to test this, is there? I mean, we can rise above it and live in a world of, of, of good thoughts and the pure forms. But in reality, you and I need to figure out how to do this in real life, don't we? And what's important. In the reading from Mark's Gospel, we have Mark's version of Jesus' prohibition against divorce. And so you're going to have to bear with me now because uh, this is 3995 biblical stuff. But it's, O.C. Edwards taught me it was important not to keep this to myself, but to share it with the people that I served. And I made a pledge to myself a long time ago to do this. So here are three things that you need to understand every time you read any of the hard sayings of Jesus, but in this particular case, any of the sayings in the New Testament about divorce. The first one, since we're reading from Mark's Gospel, is the eschatological horizon of Mark's Gospel. That's the fancy word of what did Mark expect and how he wrote his Gospel about the coming of the apocalypse, about Jesus coming again. And the world being made new. The situation on the ground for Mark was that he was alive when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Everybody ran away from Jerusalem. It was a ruin. And what occurred was the closest thing that anybody alive then in the ancient Near East would have known as an apocalypse. It was like Hiroshima. And so he concludes that what it is, listening to Jesus in retrospect, because we wrote this gospel in 70 AD, and Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and ascended into heaven in 33 AD. So he must be coming again soon. And what's going to happen when he comes is that he is going to restore the halcyon days, not of King David and Solomon, but of the Garden of Eden and the harmony that existed between Adam and Eve before the fall. And so the concept of divorce and all of that just is rendered moot. And so his understanding is, just don't do this. But the other thing is number two, and that is the church's freedom to make exceptions to the absolute prohibition of Jesus in the New Testament. The earliest writings in the New Testament are the writings of Paul, not the Gospels. Paul is writing in the late 40s or early 50s when he wrote 1 Corinthians, where he says, if you're married to an unbeliever, you can divorce them. And he prefaces that exception with saying, this is from me and not the Lord. So what does it mean? 
It means we're having a New Testament version of the pastoral situation on the ground. How are we beginning to cope with these things that are coming up now that Jesus hasn't come yet? What is the pastoral response of the church supposed to be? Reginald Fuller, one of the great biblical scholars in the 20th century, an Anglican priest, said, The point is not that the particular concessions made in the New Testament, and these only, are valid for all time, but that the New Testament grants to the church the authority to make concessions that are pastorally necessary, while at the same time keeping Jesus' absolute prohibition before men and women and making it clear that anything short of radical obedience is sinful in the eyes of God and therefore in need of forgiveness. I believe that the church is always at its best when it errs on the side of generosity and labors at finding ways to keep people in rather than excluding them. So the third piece to this is, what is the role of marriage and divorce in our own day? You know, who, you know what Christian group in this country has the highest divorce rate? Evangelical Christians. Episcopalians have a divorce rate about two percentages below that. So at least we're doing okay and not gaining on them. <laughs> you know? In the Eastern Orthodox Church, by the way, in Western Christianity, there has always been divorce. It just has had another name. But it always has existed. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, the canon law of the Orthodox Church permits a person to be divorced and remarried in the church three times. Now, if you were to read all these canons and to listen to any Orthodox priest talk, there's a lot of oil, do and it sometimes sounds more severe. But there it is. And one of the terms they use when they describe this process, it's, it's real tricky to tell this to you, but I will anyway. They speak about something called the spiritual death of the marriage. Maybe some of you know about that. What do that means? I'm well aware that it could sound like a, a real catch-all term. But it's not unimportant by any means. In the Eastern Orthodox liturgy that is celebrated for divorced people who are remarrying, there is a heavily penitential tone to the liturgy. Prayers that the couple uh, prays uh, to ask God's forgiveness and to affirm their resolve to uh, keep the promises and vows they make. In the Episcopal Church, if somebody wants to get remarried and has, as the canon law says, a previous spouse still living, application must be made to the bishop of the diocese to receive permission uh, to perform the marriage. 
But since 1967, the canon law changed and said the opinion of the parish priest who is in a pastoral relationship with these people who affirms that, yes, they understand what marriage is, uh, I believe we should move forward with this, normally receives uh, the approval of the bishop in that context. But it is focused now on the pastoral relationship and the pastoral situation on the ground, which is, I believe, an advance. Uh, some of the more um, stubborn Episcopalians, most of whom may have now stepped away from the Episcopal Church, saw that canonical change as the beginning, the first domino. Okay? In any case, we have felt necessary always to say that we wish to err on the side of generosity and keeping people in. So whenever you read these texts, keep that in mind. And you know, a lot of people who believe that the Bible is written for all time need to understand something else that is oblique to this sermon, and that is this. The Bible is not a book. It's a library of books. Some are very short, and maybe the longest one is about, in, in the English text, maybe 40 pages. And they're separate books that have their own integrity. So when we say that this speaks to us for all time, we have to have an understanding of when that book was written and who it was written for. And what was on their mind when they did this. It in no way compromises the belief or the view that this is the word of God. Because God speaks through you and through me and through the manners, morals, and customs of people as they become transformed by the power of God's love. And so can't we do that when we read these texts about divorce and all these other things? There's a lot of stuff said in absolute terms elsewhere in the Bible about things other than divorce, isn't there? Uh, like charging interest. You don't hear much about that these days, you know. So we also have to be careful about the selective reading of the Holy Scriptures. You and I can affirm two things that, are co that, that contradict each other at once. And that is that we believe in the indissolubility of marriage. And at the same time, we understand that things happen where the church needs to exercise its pastoral judgment about these things. That's our job. That's why we have a church and not just private opinion. So this week, give thanks for being made in the image and likeness of God that you bear the very imprint of the image and likeness of God, just like the coin getting stamped. Think about whether you believe that God is capricious or not. And give thanks for your marriages, for your relationships, for your partnerships, for everything that makes you better than you are. And ask God to help you make them even better. Amen.